to have you out tonight. You can open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, and tonight we're continuing on in this small condensed series, uh, Science versus God. We've talked about, we had some introductory remarks, we talked about how the Bible is scientifically, scientifically reliable. And tonight we're going to talk about evolution, specifically we'll focus our attention on the biological aspect of it. And uh, the reason we're studying this is not because the Bible has a lot to say about it. You understand that? It's, it's not a thing. <laughs> so the Bible doesn't say a lot. There's not a lot of verses I can take you to that will answer everything that scientists have come up with over the last almost 200 years, 150 years or so. But there are a few things in the Bible I would like to point out. And because the scientific community does challenge our faith with so many claims, I'd like to at least address some of those claims and give you some biblical thoughts on them. What would I, as a Bible believer, say about these scientific claims towards biological evolution? So before we dive into the Scripture and some definitions and so forth, let's bow our heads together, let's pray, and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you tonight that we can sing about how great you are and everywhere we look, whether we uh, look through the telescope or the microscope, we see your fingerprints. And Father, uh, it's, it's wonderful to see how, how glorious, how uh, majestical your work is. And as the Bible says, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Father, we believe that, that you are our creator, and therefore we owe our everything to you. Please guide us tonight as we navigate through this uh, somewhat tricky topic. Please help me, give me a clear mind, and help me to say that which is only true. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me first start off, well, with this little bit of a preface. Not a scientist. I've mentioned it before, just reminding you. I think there are probably, I don't know, a dozen of you in the room tonight that would do much better at talking about these scientific things than myself. You're familiar with the terminology You've had these uh, classes in school, perhaps even recently, I don't know, 70 years ago when I was in school. Uh, it's been a while, right? It's, it's been a while. I was asking Brother Garrett yesterday, I said, can you please explain, you know, something about the atom to me, the protons and neutrons and the electrons, and then, so he just launched into it, and I sat there, and <laughs> his mouth kind of dropped open, the, oh, okay, I, I followed along, but boy, I can tell that uh, some of you are going to be better at explaining some of these things. Nevertheless, I'm going to do my level best to give you some biblical thoughts. I think that's where I can contribute. So just making sure you understand, I know my limitations on this. When we talk about evolution, let's properly define the term. All right? the, the word itself to evolve, right? if something's evolving, is changing. It, it's gradually developing or changing. So at that level, at that very basic definition, I have no problems with the word itself. And even within nature, we'll talk about this more as the lesson goes on, we do see a certain type of evolution happening. We do see things slowly changing and developing gradually. There are limits to that, okay? But we do see that. The scientific community, however, uses the word evolution in a different way. Now, they do sometimes, they mix and match actually. So they'll take these smaller examples of things uh, slowly changing, variations and mutations and small little, we might call it micro changes, and they'll say, you see, things change over time. That's evolution. Evolution's true. 
Okay? And if, if that were the end of the story, we'd all get along. But then they take it one step further. And they say, aha, but if you give it enough time, this microevolution will turn into a macroevolution and things will begin to change from one kind to another. And we'll develop that thought in just a moment. So let me give you the definition. This is right out of the dictionary. I'm, I'm quoting here. Evolution means the process by which different kinds of living organisms are believed to have developed from earlier forms during the history of the earth. Right? Now that doesn't sound all that bad, but let me emphasize one thing. I'm going to read it again. Let me put a little emphasis here. The process by which different kinds, okay, I'm going to show you that word in just a moment in the Bible, the process by which different kinds of living organisms are believed, are believed to have developed from earlier forms during the history of the earth. So what they are claiming there is that one kind of living organism, for example, a dog, can over time gradually become a cat or a horse or something of a different kind. And, and the key phrase, I think, in that whole definition, it says these living organisms are believed to have developed. So even in the dictionary, they cannot make a factual statement because no one has ever observed evolution on that grand scale of a cat becoming a dog or a banana becoming a baby or a rock. No one's ever seen that happen. That is a, that is a faith statement Right? It is, you say, well, they started off by doing some scientific inquiries in the lab and they observed some small changes and to that we agree, they saw small things. But then they extrapolate that, they push it out and then imagination gets involved. And, and that's where we're going to have the problem. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1 real quick. I don't think any of this is going to be surprising to you, but verse number 14 the Bible says, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for, the, uh, for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And then we have a description in verse 16, 17, 18, and 19. The sun, moon, and stars are created. As the Bible describes it, the universe, the, the natural world as we see it, it was created in six 24-hour days. That's how the first chapter of Genesis explains it to us. Look at verse number 20. God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of the heaven. And then you have fish and fowl. All right? That's day five. So day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, fish and fowl. Come on down to verse number 24. God said, let the earth bring forth a living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth after, after his kind. Do you see that word keep, that it keeps popping up? After his kind. And cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. On the same day that God made the animals, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, over the every creeping 
thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. This is the biblical version. I don't think this is a surprise to any of you. God took six 24-hour periods of time to create everything as it is. So, is it possible that a monkey can share, a monkey of some sort, whatever kind of monkey they're talking about, I don't know if it's a chimp or an ape or whatever they're saying nowadays. The scientific community does change the narrative, so it's a little difficult to to keep up with it. But they'll say something like a chimpanzee has 96% similarity with our DNA, and what do we say about that? God made it similar. I mean, according to the record... God made everything on day six as far as the land-dwelling animals, and could God not make them similar? And is that perhaps the reason why there are some similarities between how a chimp acts and how a human you know, uh, reacts to the world around him? I, I don't think that's asking too much uh, to believe that, that God could have made them similar. Now, according to the scientific theory, this is the biblical version of how things came to be. God put it in order, and he told these things to act in this way. And he gave it purpose. And uh, God said, you're going to bring forth after your kind. When we observe nature around us, this is what we see happening. Now, the, the scientific version of it is something like this. As I say, the narrative changes. About 14 and a half billion years ago, there was a big boom, a big bang. Something exploded. What that was, we're not sure. But something blew up. And then over the course of billions of years, eventually, I'm narrowing our focus to the earth itself, the earth cooled. It cooled to the point that life could begin, right? That the necessary elements for life could begin to gather here on the earth. And then somehow, I don't know who knew this, it began to rain on the earth. And enough water came down on the earth that it filled up what we now have as the oceans. And then eventually, this pool of ooze somehow came together and formed life, and life gradually crawled its way out of the oceans. The sea animals eventually and gradually evolved into flying animals, which eventually, some of them also turned into land animals, and then eventually turned into us, and now we're turning into robots. (laughs) AI is the next thing, right? (laughs) My pastor used to give us a little poem. Once I was a monkey swinging in a tree. Now I'm a doctor with a PhD. Right? That <laughs> succinctly sums up evolution's claims. All right, so the, the scientific story here. No one was around for the Big Bang. There's, there's no way to properly document that. But the idea that there was a starting point to everything. That, to that we agree. But what, went, what caused it to go bang? What was there? The Bible has an answer. Science doesn't have an answer. Science will say something went bang. We don't know what, we don't know why, but bang. They even get a little bit circular, I think, in their reasoning. They say, well, the laws of nature dictated that it must go bang. Where did the laws of nature come from if there was no nature? How do you have laws for nature with no nature? You can't say, well, the laws dictated, then who wrote the laws? It's very circular in that way. So we're not going to deal with the sun, moon, and stars so much tonight. Let's talk rather about this biological, uh, the biological aspect of it. When you look at living organisms on the planet, as we've seen here, we bring forth after our kind. But what does it mean after their kind? Because 
Science will say, and I, I use the word loosely here, the scientific community. I'm shortening that just by saying science. Science will say that, but there are different species. And you see one uh, dog perhaps can become several different species, and that's an example of evolution. Yes, in a micro sense, that there are variations, that we admit. But the, the way that the word is used in the Bible, kind, it's not talking about species. The way it's used here, let's talk about that, what they call the taxonomical rankings. So you have life at the very top, then you have a domain, and then kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species at the very bottom, right? So the Bible word kind will fall in right around the family area of this. So working back up, species, genus, and then family. That would be a kind. This is like a canine. That's a family. A feline, a reptilian, uh, aves or the avian kind, the birds. Those are your families. And under that heading, you can have so many variations of birds. But what you will not find is a reptile becoming a bird or a dog becoming a cat. But it will, it will stay within its family. So scientists have observed the micro version of evolution, but they say give it enough time and the, you will see a jump from one kind to another. And I'm going to use the term macro evolution for that. I'm not crazy about those terms. There's a long story for that, but for tonight we'll use those terms. Now, what's the evidence? When you ask a scientist, an evolutionist, what's the evidence that a dog can slowly become a cat or a reptile can slowly become a bird? They will point you to the fossil record. And they will say, but you see, we have found the bones of the intermediate stages. We can show you how an animal has part reptile and part bird. And that's the in-between. That's a very quick and easy answer, but when you really look at the bones... It's, it's not that clear. The fossil record is far from complete. First of all, ask, ask yourself this question. How many fossils are there in the record? All right, just ask yourself that. How many fossils are we supposed to have? Does anybody know? The answer is no. Nobody knows how many fossils are out there. How many bones are there left over from however many animals have existed? We don't know. So let me use an illustration. You're putting a, a puzzle together. We dump a few pieces on the table, and then you start to try to piece them together. And if you've ever done puzzles, you know, they take a little time to see which fits where. Some almost fit, but you're not quite sure. Have you ever put the wrong piece, and it almost fit, and it, you got it stuck there for a while until you realize that that doesn't belong there? Puzzles can be complicated like that. If you know that there are, let's say, 500 pieces to the puzzle... Well, then you can narrow it down and go, this has got to fit within this 500 pieces. What if we just dumped a few pieces on the table? It's actually supposed to be 10,000 pieces, but we only gave you 100. It, you might be able to fit a few of those pieces together, right? And you might even think, the 100 pieces I have, I have to fit them together because this is the whole puzzle. No, it's not. There's 10,000 pieces and none of those pieces might be connected. So when you look at a fossil, you are looking at a dead animal. You're not looking at the story of the dead animal. Remember that. Someone else has to come in with his imagination and say, well, hmm, I think these bones 
would probably come before these bones and after these bones, and then the scientist adds the story to the bones, and he doesn't know if he's dealing with all the necessary pieces to that puzzle. There's a decent chance that he's missing a lot of the pieces. So let's uh, give you a different illustration. Perhaps this will jog in your mind quite nicely. Think of a book that has a million words. Now, that's a lot of words. I don't know if you're mindful of how many words are in a book, but that's a lot of words. But think of a million words in a book. Now, take that book and start cutting it up. Every page, cut it up. Cut it up into small pieces, okay? And then I will give you 100 of those small pieces of the million-page book. And now I want you to start piecing those together. How much of the story will you be able to tell? Very, very little. And what are the odds that all the pieces you got actually went together in the same page or same section of the book? Very slim to none that everything's going to fit perfectly like that. That's what you're dealing with more or less in the fossil record. Uh, I read a book by Richard Dawkins, who's kind of the mouthpiece for biological evolution in many ways. He wrote a book called The Greatest Show on Earth, The Evidence for Evolution. And he gave several points in there that he thinks proves this. And he talked about how he saw certain changes in birds and certain changes in dogs. And he said, now, do you see how breathtaking these changes are and how they can adapt to their surroundings and their environment? And you see how natural selection, it's built within us. It's in our DNA to select what will best help us survive the environment that we are in. So he says, if we give natural selection enough time, it will select a better way to be and we will continually get better and better and better and we will build up out of the water, onto the land, stronger until we become robots. He didn't say that, but I'm just thinking that's, that's where you're kind of heading with all of that. He said, you see these few adaptations that we observe in nature. Now, imagine if you had several million years. Imagine how many changes would still take place after millions of years. Do you see what he's done? I think that's a little bit tricky. He's given you actual scientific data. We saw these changes. Aren't these interesting? Yes. You turned a German shepherd into a chihuahua. We have no clue why you did that, but you did that. You created a useless creature. <laughs> a squeaky toy <laughs> that runs around, and you have to... Anyway... I lost my train of thought. Now I got stuck with a chihuahua in my mind. You have observed that. Fair enough. We'll give you that. But, but he got a little tricky and said, now, give us millions of years and imagine what we can make. But, whoa. He is not calling on the facts. He's calling on your imagination to get you from the facts to his faith statement. He is making a religious statement even. Say, so why religion? Because just like in certain churches, you have priests that wear a robe and they say, you must believe us because we know we have this special intelligence and knowledge and we have the answers. The same thing exists in scientific labs. They put on their lab coats and say, we have knowledge that you don't. We understand the whole, you just have to trust us. These are faith claims, not fact claims. They, they have a few facts and then jump and say, please imagine along with us. Now, biblically speaking, do we have any reason to deny that variations happen within a kind? 
No, and I'll prove it to you really quick. Just look around the room. We're all human, and we're all different. Variations, right? From Adam and Eve, two people, boom, here we are. So are, is it possible to have variations within the kind? Yes, many. Yes, absolutely. Is it possible to see similarities between certain animals, like a, a bird and a reptile, could there be similarities in shared characteristics? Yes. Could we share some characteristics with a chimp? Yes. But that doesn't mean one came from the other. It can very viably be that God just made them both that way. So that's really not any evidence to say, but look how similar they are. That's not evidence. That's an observation. That's not telling the story. Two things I think we should perhaps consider tonight. As Bible believers, we have what's called a top-down view of nature. We believe that an ultimate and incredibly intelligent being fed information from the top, an incredibly complex mind fed information into the material world and created order out of what could have been chaos. He put it all together and it consists now by the word of his power. But this is why we call it top down. The things at the bottom, right, they, they had to get their information from somewhere. They got it from the top, and it's coming down. Evolution turns that around. They believe in what's, what would be called a bottom-up approach, to say it starts off very, very simple, and slowly, through the process of natural selection, that organism, that single-celled organism, will eventually grow and grow and grow, and through mutations, adaptations, variations, become bigger and smarter and more and more complex. So bottom going up, and it will get better and better at surviving. All right, a couple of problems with that, I, I believe. Some things that we ought to consider. First of all, why is there something rather than nothing? Okay, now, now here's why I say this. You say bottom up. Okay, why did the bottom decide to start? It, it, when you say the bottom, you have to put something at the bottom. Now, according to the story, right, the earth cooled, the waters came down, something crawled out of the waters, but who put all that there? It, when you say bottom, single-celled, where did, if, if it was a non-living entity and it became a living entity, how did it get from non-living to living? There are some jumps here that cannot be explained. How do you get from nothing to something? So when you say bottom up, you are assuming that somebody put the bottom there and then made it smart enough to want to grow, which would lead to my second question. How did something know to start growing? Maybe we could ask it this way. Why would it want to survive, live longer, get better? Who told it to do that? Why would it have that goal? Why would it be thinking at all? So when we talk about natural selection, gentlemen, can I please get your help just for a quick second? Would you three guys just come stand next to me up here? Perhaps you've heard the term evolution through the process of natural selection. So the idea is, you guys just stand in a little bit of a line here. So we have this, let's call it a strand of DNA, you know, and here are some codes, little, the letters in the DNA string. And what natural selection will do is look around at, it, at its environment and say, which, which one of these will help me best survive my environment? And then select the necessary traits and move forward choosing this and not that. So natural selection, right? We start with three options. 
And then you two gentlemen just move this way for me. Sorry, Zinli, we're leaving you out. <laughs> now, now I have two. I've selected these two, yes? And not that. Do I now have four? Natural selection does not add anything. It takes away. You see, it excluded that one. All right, now perhaps you guys stand together again. Perhaps natural selection says, you know what? According to this environment, it would be better to switch these two things. No, you guys can't. <laughs> Let's switch it around. It can reorder the information. It can select from. But that's just changing the order. There are still three things. And at best, it will only be three things. It cannot become four. All right, guys, have a seat. Thank you very much. I wanted to run you through that. I know that seems very simple, but the, the idea is if you have natural selection, you have to have something to select from. And as you select, watch what happens. You start off with the DNA code is, I don't know, what, a billion letters long? When you have that long strip of code, you start selecting, you're going to narrow that down, narrow that down, narrow that down, narrow that down, top down, top down. So even within science, I think it shows that. <laughs> I had this illustration at first, and then I decided to go with that one. But I'll give you this one anyway, because it's Sunday evening, and I'm a little bit hungry. If you had chocolate ice cream and vanilla ice cream, and you choose one, right? If I choose chocolate and not vanilla, that, that leaves me, right? I've chosen one, that leaves one on the table. It doesn't create a third one. <laughs> you don't get strawberry by choosing chocolate. That would be awesome, <laughs> but, but you don't. Now, you can mix and match the chocolate and the vanilla and get slight variations in that, right? I hate to say it, but look around. We got some vanilla in the room. We got some chocolate in the room. We can mix and match, right? I'm going to stop with that illustration right there, <laughs> right there. Take your Bible, look at Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and let's come please to verse number 20. So let me give you a quote from Charles Darwin himself. This is a, a quote from his book on the origin of the species, written in 1859. Darwin said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. All right, now there's a lot to that. Let me read it one more time and, and tell you what he's trying to say here. If you could find something that was so complex that you could not have started with one little thing and then modify it, change it just a little bit, and add just a little bit, and add one more thing, add one more thing, and then he's essentially saying if you couldn't start at something very simple at the bottom and slowly build it to be complex, if you started with something complex, you understand, it's not, you can't start with just one thing, but something so complex that you had to have multiple working parts at once, he said if you could find that, my theory breaks. Let me read it again. Hopefully that'll click now. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. 
So Darwin was putting forth the idea of biological evolution through the process of natural selection. But what most people fail to know about this situation, Darwin's in the 1850s, 1830s, 1850s, there was a man before him named Charles Lyell who came up with the idea of a very old earth. He introduced the idea that we've been around not for thousands of years, but millions and millions of years. And with that thought in mind, Darwin thought, huh, well, if we've been around that long, perhaps we've had enough time to slightly modify into the complex beings that we are. Now, there have been a lot of holes found in Lyell's theory. And even today, if you ask a scientist about Darwin, most scientists have abandoned Darwin's earliest theories because they just haven't panned out. But let's take Darwin at his challenge. Can we find a complex entity, an organ, that could not possibly have been formed without successive slight modifications? Well, this is what we now call irreducible complexity. That's the big term for it. Irreducibly complex. The easiest illustration of this, I believe, is a mousetrap. If you think of a mousetrap, you have multiple parts, right? Not too many, but you have a platform or a, a plate. You have a catch. You have a hammer. You have a spring. You have a hold-down bar. And if you're smart, you got some bait. Yeah. All right? Now, if you were to just find those pieces laying separately, would you look at the hammer and think, hmm, that is going to catch a mouse? Not by itself. That little piece of metal, you would never think by itself could catch a mouse. So in order to have a mouse trap, you have to have all those parts at the same time. You understand the illustration? You can't have just one part. If you just had the plate by itself, not a mouse trap. If you had the plate and then a spring, you wouldn't have a mouse trap. Plate, spring, and a hammer, not a mouse trap. You have to have a catch. You have to have multiple parts, so it's irreducibly complex. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 20. The Bible says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. What a fantastic statement. Notice the word invisible, and then notice the words clearly seen. The invisible things of God can be clearly seen. God has left His fingerprints all over His creation. All right, now let's keep going. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they, that is the sinful world, sinners, are without excuse. You have no excuse for saying, well, I didn't know that there was a Creator God who would hold me accountable. Right? So he already talks in the passage about how we have a conscience and that bears witness to the fact that there's a God. Why do we care about right and wrong? If we came from a rock, why do we care about right and wrong? Where did this moral capacity come from? Rocks could, couldn't care less about right and wrong. But we do. So it begs the question, where did that come from? If you think of the top-down system, it makes sense. God programmed us like that. So Paul deals with that in the passage, and then in verse 20, he deals with creation. So conscience and creation very much prove the Creator. The things that are made, it says, even His eternal power and Godhead. So God's creation keeps on working. It doesn't just blow up and fall to pieces every other moment. But when you look at, at 
all the things that need to go right in order for the world to keep spinning, the solar system to keep working, for the earth to hang on nothing like it does, for the atom to stay together. Why would you have neutrons and protons sticking together in the nucleus of the atom? Protons are positively charged. Am I right, Garrett? Okay, if you have a positive and a positive, they don't stick. They should repel. But yet, I don't know, maybe some of you can explain that better. But who told that atom to come together? Man, if I were to try to put that together, we'd all be dead. (laughs) Blown up. Right? If you just let atoms explode, which if they believe there was a big bang, what are the odds of a bomb going off and then all the atoms in the, in the universe said, hey, let's work together. Let's stick together, guys. Really? What are the odds of that? And what are the odds that they would get it right? And go, let's perfectly balance ourselves. That's asking an awful lot of unintelligent matter to just figure that out. But God has manifested His eternal power. He has commanded things to work. And the Bible says all things are held together by the word of his power. Why do things continue to work? Because God told it to. And long after we're gone, right, the mountains will still be standing, the wind will still be blowing, the sun keeps going up, the moon keeps following it around. All of these things continue to happen, and we have, there's nothing we need to do to keep that going. God has programmed creation to work. But then we also see his Godhead. Now, in what way does that prove? How does the Godhead, right, relate to creation? Now, now Godhead, we're talking the Trinity. Because if you have the Islamic or the Jewish view of God to say, well, there's just one single entity, well, then you've got one thing that can become bigger and bigger. I believe the biblical Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have three in one. You can't have just one part or one person. You have to have all three persons to have God. He is irreducibly complex. And he left that as evidence. He said, if you want evidence that I created it, look for things that are irreducibly complex. Things that cannot be broken down to just one, but you have to have more than one working part existing at the same time, working in perfect harmony. I gave you the illustration of a mousetrap, but something that is often brought up, and I think many organs of the body could be mentioned here, but the eye is a very popular example of this. When you look at the complexity of the eye and all the necessary parts that go into a working eyeball, the idea that you could start off with nothing, become something, and then that little something says, huh, I want to make an eyeball. And I'm going to do it one piece at a time. Where do you start? Furthermore, what is sight? Why would that thing say, I want eyes? It doesn't even know what light is. I have heard Richard Dawkins explain how the eye evolved. And his answer was this. He said, well, he was telling the, uh, the, the host, the person asking him the questions. He said, oh, it's, it's really, it's not that difficult to conceive if you think of it properly. He said... It is better to have one one one-hundredth of an eye than to have nothing. So, if you have... Now, he's just throwing numbers out, right? I don't know how many working parts there are in an eye, but let's just use the term, uh, the the number 100. To have one one one-hundredth of an eye, it's better than having no part of an eye. 
I would agree with that. Except, what's an eye? He's assuming that we already know what an eye is. He's assuming that that organism knew what the end goal was. And that it needed all 100 parts and that that organism said, Hey, I have one one-hundredth of an eye. Let me hang on to this and the next cycle of, re- of, of generation, I'll hang on to that one working part and add another part and now I have two one-hundredths of an eye. It doesn't know what it's building. It doesn't know what light is. So Dawkins was explaining how that, that organism would realize it's better to be able to see shades of light because you would see your predator coming. That would be necessary for survival. And then it would naturally start to build on itself and, and make it more and more complex. Now I can see shades, but I need to see where it's coming from. So the eyeball would create this uh, surrounding so that the light would bounce off the side. But you're assuming that you know what an eyeball is. There's no way that nature would have known that it was in any way necessary. And the same thing would apply to your ear, to your smelling, to your taste. How would you know that you needed those things? I like what John Lennox said about all of this. He said, I prefer an explanation that makes sense compared to one that doesn't. (laughs) That's so simple but so profound. Rainier, may I ask you please to turn this on? I'm going to show you a real, this is a very short clip. Guys, I would encourage you to go home and look at this on YouTube yourself. This is something called the flagellum motor. Um, Yeah, that's the one. The flagellum motor. So we're going to look at one bacterium. And this is the motor that is built into a bacterium cell. All right, so the flagellum motor. The long whip-like portion of the flagellum is called the filament. Filaments are composed of many identical globular protein molecules called flagellin. Molecules of flagellin form helical chains around a hollow core. Certain pathogenic bacteria can be identified and classified by differences in their flagellar proteins. In contrast with eukaryotic flagella, no membrane covers the filament of a prokaryotic flagellum. The whip-like filament inserts into a curved structure called a hook. The hook is composed of a different protein and connects the filament to the basal body. The basal body is composed of different proteins than the filament and hook. The basal body is composed of a rod and a series of either two or four rings which anchor the flagellum to the cell wall and allow the flagellum to rotate 360 degrees. You're viewing a flagellum from a gram-negative cell. A gram-positive cell would only have two rings in its basal body, both of which are attached to the plasma membrane. Now, I hope you can appreciate why I let YouTube do the explanation and not me. I don't even know how to pronounce half of those words. Now, let me... Oh, that's fine. We'll take that down. Do you understand that's, one, that's what's happening in one little cell? That cell needs to be able to move. That little appendage that's flapping around that can go 360 degrees and move that it it, there's a little motor built into the cell and if you don't have all the working parts all the rods and the cylinders and the hook and the appendage flapping around it doesn't work it cannot come together one piece at a time you have to have all of those pieces a bacterium cell is made up of 11 parts now this is a very you know basic structure for 
for, or, for uh, organic life. But when you look at that cell, please go look it up in your own time. It is like a little city. You look at those parts, it looks like a little city, and you'll see it looks like one little worker pulling something along a track, setting it in its place, and then moving itself backwards, and then going over. It is in, like a little city operating. And how that could have accidentally come together and figured out, you know what, this is good for our survival. You have more faith than me. I, I, I cannot believe that, that an unintelligent nature figured that out. Eleven parts in one cell. Listen to this. There are anywhere from 42 to 110 protein molecules in one cell. The flagella, the flagella motor, that little appendage part, by itself has about 25 to 30 proteins. But each protein is encoded with DNA which tells the protein how to operate. You understand, that, that protein tells itself how to replicate and, and, and how, to, how to continue making more DNA and RNA, etc. But in each cell, one little cell, three billion DNA base pairs. So you understand when you have DNA, you have, think of it as a string of letters and then a string of letters, right? So there's your, your base pair. That's what creates the double helix. So it starts spinning around like that. Three billion. Now, in order to help you visualize that, fill a page, take, take one, I got one page out of my Bible here. Uh, take one page, write as many letters as you can on the page, all right? And then do that with enough paper and stack it 100 meters tall. 100 meters. Our building to the roof is about 10-ish. Okay? 100 meters, so 10 times the size of this area right here between the floor and the ceiling. Something like that. Am I right? Is that 10 meters? More or less, yeah. So 10 times the size of this building, paper, with all those letters, you have just one little strand of DNA. Now, what are the odds of that alphabet coming together perfectly so that life can operate? Just accidentally putting all three billion letters right where they need to be? Look at John chapter 1. I do not think that that little flagellum motor on one of the most basic organic entities could possibly have happened by accident or over the period of millions of years just figured it out. But when you look inside of that thing, you find that DNA code, and it is an alphabet. Where would it get this alphabet from? John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Because we see the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. We would fully expect to see His fingerprints, His code embedded in every living thing. And that is what we see. We see a string of letters that form words. And it means something. Let me end tonight's lesson in Mark chapter 10. If you're like me, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by science. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy reading about it, hearing about it. Can't say that I follow all of it. Not my forte, but I'm impressed by it. But if you're like me, perhaps a lot of this stuff kind of goes over your head. 
So if you want to simplify this, if somebody comes and says, yeah, but what about this? What about this? I'll tell you a great way to deal with it. So, okay, let, let's take all the scientists and put them on one side. And let's take Jesus and put them on the other. And let's just compare who do you want to trust more? Who gets it right more often? All right, Jesus said, Mark 10, verse 6, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Jesus believed in a creation. He believed in the Genesis story. That's why I gave you the verses all the way down to Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. Jesus believed in Genesis chapter 1, the way it stands. He didn't, he didn't feel any pressure to manipulate it or say it didn't really mean what it said. It means just what it says. So the fact that Jesus made the claims, died for our sins, was buried and rose again, I'm very happy to trust his opinion, if I can even call it an opinion. I'll trust his statement, let's say, compared to the scientific community. So when you're dealing with these things, please don't feel intimidated. I know there's a lot of scientific uh, jargon and words and pressure, but when you really look at the evidence, there's no reason to doubt the biblical account for what we see going on. All right, let's all stand. Thank you for your time tonight. Let's pray. We'll dismiss and let you guys enjoy some fellowship tonight. Father, thank you. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We believe that it came down from the top. Lord, it started with you, and Lord, it's beyond description as far as I'm concerned. I could never put it into words how, how, how intricate, how incredible your creation is, and, and we haven't even scratched the surface. Lord, as we sang earlier, we look forward to the day that the trumpet sounds and we can bow in your presence and say, my God, how great thou art. And Lord, we have so many reasons to believe that. Father, please dismiss us with your blessing. Thank you for a great day in the house of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so you folks enjoy some time together. Have a good evening.